0: if never you find what you're looking for come on back to the front Careless in the Care of God, Season 2, Episode 1. I thought uh, I would go back through my book. I, I've got intrigued again by this book called Love is Now. And I thought it would be great to sort of read some excerpts and maybe even try to read the book online to chat about um, this profound book that really, in, for all all intense purposes, uh, changed my destiny in relationship to my faith with Jesus. Um, I've told the story in my book, but, um, there was an afternoon while I was living in Calgary and, um, professor from school, a good dear friend of mine, uh, recognized, I think pretty fully how low and, uh, alone I was feeling. And he said, you know, you ought to go read this book called love is now by Peter Gilquist. Um, Peter Gilquist had a long and wild life, um, after this book is written, uh, this book is written somewhere in the sixties, got this great Paisley hippie cover all over it. Um, this book was written in the sixties and he went on to venture into the Orthodox church, which I think is a fascinating conversation un unto un- itself. But at least at the moment when this book was written, um, it had this profound impact on me. I, I took the book from the library, checked it out, went over to a coffee shop in this little town, sat down at the desk, um, or at the chair after ordering my coffee, thinking I might just read a chapter. I might just be interested in, uh, you know, trying to escape a little bit of, of schoolwork for the day. And I ended up sitting at the coffee shop all day reading this book because of its profound impact on the way I thought about Jesus and what Jesus thought about me. And as I've grown older and as time has gone by, it's one of the things that probably is most impacting to me is that I've realized, my professors in college always talked about this, that God was interested in making a people for himself. And I didn't really understand that. I thought that was much more about um, our pursuit of holiness and our sort of pursuit of fixing all the things that are wrong with us so that we might be righteous enough to be presented in front of God. What I didn't realize until I read this book was that, that pursuit of God was coming sort of God coming after us, chasing after us and trying to make life for us, um, in, in an image that was already restored. We were restored through our faith in Jesus. And I didn't quite get that. So I life of faith for many, many years and did all the things went to church, played in the worship band, read Bible studies, went to Bible college, and didn't really understand that there was this true, uh, amazing God who'd made the universe and was after me and interested in me and not interested in me for my behavior, but interested in me strictly for being me because he'd made me and had created me and the image of God was in me. And so he was interested in that relationship with me. And I, that was a profound moment in my life to realize that I didn't have any more to do or didn't have anything else to add to the story. So I thought this season would be fun to go through this book. It's it's, like I said, it was a profoundly uh, impacting book in my life. It changed the destiny I feel like I have with Jesus simply because it articulated so many things. So we'll go through it. I'm going to read it chapter by chapter like I did the last book. Um, It's a little bit longer than the book... It's a little bit longer than my book, but it does have some really great stuff in it. Hopefully, there's some discussions that can come out of it. Hopefully, we can enjoy it. Hopefully, we can um, hear some good news in it. So, I'm going to start with this. Love is Now, Peter Gilquist, and this is chapter one, The Beginnings. It was springtime. The year was 1959. As we looked across from the East Bank, it was good to see the Mississippi flowing again at full force. The campus itself was coming back to life from its wintry sleep. Weekly rehearsals for campus carnival would soon change to three times a week and finally every night. The carnival was a big event at the University of Minnesota, especially if you belonged to a fraternity or sorority. Things were going too well. There was always plenty to do to keep a person from really facing himself. The carnival was just a small part of the activity. House parties on the weekends, late night bowl sessions, intramural athletic events. For me, Even bad things like grades and classes were no longer a threat. I seemed to have the academic scene analyzed well enough to pull at least B's and C's, and what more could a college junior ask for? In addition, I had just become pinned to a lovely green-eyed blonde and was convinced that she was the one for me. I was active on campus, active in the house, and had plenty of money as a result of two well-paying part-time jobs. My first car, a spotless 1951 Buick Roadmaster named Charles, was by far the slickest thing on campus. There was just one hangup: no purpose to it at all. But why get sidetracked by peripheral inconsequentials like purpose and meaning when there is a whole big life to live? The invasion of this self-erected securities shield came on a Monday. Uh, the invasion of this self-erected security shield came on a Monday evening that spring. It was dinner time and chapter night, which meant all the men in the fraternity house were together for the evening meeting. Just as we were finishing dinner, our president announced that we would be hosting a panel of four men for an hour and a half after dinner discussion before our chapter meetings began. Then the bomb was dropped. The subject, announced, was Christianity. My first inclination was to quietly slip out. We had never had a Christian meeting in my two years as a member of Sigma Alpha Epsilon, and I, for one, did not wish to begin. It was not that I I was opposed to religion. My thought was, why flog a dead horse? God and I already had a smooth working relationship. I didn't bother him, and he didn't bother me. After dinner, about 70 of us gathered in the living room to hear what these men had to say. I had pictured in my mind's eye four little old fellows with bony index fingers aimed at me, who would get after us for moral misdemeanors. They'd be wearing baggy suits, yellowed white shirts, and have gravy stains on their hand-painted Hawaiian neckties. Their eyeglasses would be as thick as the bottom of Coke bottles, and their beady stares would come through even stronger as a result. I was, without question, psychologically up for their presentation first man to speak was an exchange student from India. He was working for a double doctorate at the university. He had come to this country as a Hindu, and his desire, he said, was not to just study in America, but also to investigate Christianity. He began by telling how he had systematically and objectively considered all of the even uh, uh, the 11 living religions of the world and had discovered that the founder of just one, namely Jesus of Nazareth, had ever claimed to be God. He studied the life and teachings of Jesus Christ and terminated his quest upon personal surrender for his, to his, of his life to him. After his commitment to Christ, he continued. His parents rejected him and ceased to send him monetary aid. For two years, he lived by faith and God met every need he had. We, listen, we listening, were amazed. I doubt that any of us had ever heard anyone talk so intimately of a relationship with God as this young Indian did that evening the next person who spoke was not of our same intellectual heritage as, as the uh, was not the same of the same intellectual heritage as the first in fact he was the co-captain of our football team but as he stood and shared with us his relationship to christ it was apparent that he too possessed the same quality of life as did the first speaker by the time the meeting had ended most of us concluded that either these men had what we wanted or else they were just plain deluded one of the two a couple of days later i had coffee with one of the men on the panel at the varsity cafe on campus he releg- he re- he related in detail how i could experience a true and meaningful walk with god i knew it made sense but i felt i needed time i asked ray if he would mind stopping by the house on wednesday evenings just so we could talk further i recall that i always invited two or three of my fraternity brothers to be on hand just so the conversation would not be too personal, we began studying the Bible. It was during the time, the third or it was during the third or fourth week that we had met together on this basis that I spotted a passage in the Gospel of John which captured my imagination. Jesus was speaking, and he said, "I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly." The phrase "more abundantly" was what hit me. Somehow, I had surmised that if I were to become a Christian, everything would have to go all wrong. Then, from the depths of isolation and fear, I would cry out to my Maker. It is true that some people come to God that way, I was just not one of them. Overtly, as I have stated, everything was going extremely well. Life, I felt, was already abundant. But here was the thing Jesus had promised in the way of more abundance. Naturally, it was appealing. This could well be the answer to my purpose gap. I told Ray I did not want to be pushed, but that I was interested. There was a desire to respond to God all on my own so that Ray could not have not say he had persuaded me to pray with him. That night, as I climbed into the top bunk on my second floor dorm of the fraternity, I pulled the covers over my head and invited Jesus Christ to enter my life and do it as, do with it as he pleased. I guess I partly trusted to him as my savior. I pr- partly trusted in him as my savior and partly as my hero. What spoke to me at that point was not so much his, depth, his death for my sins as it was his promise to give me a better life. I really had no concept of heaven or hell. A relationship with Jesus was, right, was a right now kind of thing. And I did believe that if I were to ask him to enter into my life, he would do it. The next morning, I woke up with a new awareness of his being a part of me. The feeling I had was one I had had before, only far more intense. It's that feeling that usually comes after you do something that you know is right. I sensed that God was pleased too. The rest of the spring that year came off as planned. We didn't didn't place in the campus carnival, but some of the guys did get pinned, and some of the girls in the sorority with which we teamed up for the show. The fraternities sponsored a picnic in May, but this time I was the one who helped carry a few of the other guys into into waiting cars when it was over. A new concern for other people, such as I had not experienced since I was a small child, began to express itself. Of great encouragement was the fact that my pinmate, who is now my wife, had met Christ that same spring, a few weeks ahead of me. I had some catching up to do. Before my turning to God, Marilyn and I had discussed at length her own newly acquired sincerity for going God's way. She was almost bewildered when I received Christ because I had indicated no real interest whatsoever in the Christian life. After I admitted to her that I was that I had trusted Christ as my own, we would talk regularly about Him. In a few weeks, school was out, and I was off to the at to Fort Riley, Kansas, for six weeks of military training with the ROTC unit from Minnesota letters from maryland kept me stoked spiritually to the point at which i began to share with a few of the men at camp my new relationship with christ back in minneapolis later in the summer my thinking began to gel with regard to god's life pl- to god's life plan first i was deeply impressed by a movie shown at maryland's church on the life of peter marshall for it was through this film that god called me as a worker in the body of christ Second, at a conference just outside the Twin Cities late in August, I heard a message describing the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and I felt that though through understanding the fact of His life within, my life would never again be the same. A week later, Marilyn and I served as counselors at a church camp in northern Minnesota. As we talked that week with others about knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way, many responded, including some of the other counselors. I returned to campus in the fall and enrolled for the the first quarter of my senior year. The summer had been a good experience. The personalness of ho- of the Holy Spirit had become a reality for the first time, and I sensed a new strength and willingness to obey God. From that time on, I never questioned God's presence within me. But even in the light of what I had learned, things began to go wrong in the matter of being in this matter of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I leaked. Introspection set in, and I began to wonder if little little things I was doing would turn him off. I started to develop a grand capacity to look inward at myself rather than look upward toward Christ. A cardinal point of my personal Christian doctrine in this early stage came over the matter of sin. To me, being filled with the Holy Spirit meant maintaining a spotless fellowship with God into which no sin would come. If I did commit a sin, I felt my fellowship with him would be broken, and he would most certainly withdraw his blessing and his approval from me. I would carefully confess my sins, but my life itself never seemed to improve that much. I found myself preoccupied with trying not to sin, instead of depending on Christ to live within me. There was nothing worse than to tell the Lord in the morning that this day would be his, and that I wanted my life completely under his control and then to have something go haywire later in the day culminating in hate thoughts or inner anger and be under the consequences of a total sense of failure for the rest of the day the lack of assurance which i possessed regarding forgiveness had nothing to do at all with the things i had done before i was a christian i knew these things were forgiven the question that arose in my mind again and again was what does god do with sins you commit, and even enjoy after you become his son. Answers that came in response to this were varied. They all seemed to have an if clause, and the if involved would invariably be dependent upon something I must do. Thus, rather than my faith and trust in Jesus Christ increasing, my attention continued to move progressively deeper into my personal spiritual performance. All this time, I was actively relaying the message of Christ to others, especially students, and truly enjoying myself. People were responding to him with enthusiasm, and in this, I found great encouragement. In order to compensate for the abyss that existed between what I saw in the life of Jesus and what was present in my own experience, I developed an artificial outside Christianity. I was subtly moving away from the simple love and trust in christ with which i had begun and i tended toward a religious system of performance and duty when i interacted with people whom i could not love i learned to speak a vocabulary with inflections that sounded like i was concerned through sales training in the past i had learned the importance of eye contact when conversing with others i developed a way of looking like i really cared Often I did care, other times I did not. People could not tell the difference. With practice, I began to be unaware of this facade myself. My attitude towards God slipped into a job-centered relationship. Instead of depending on Him for my life, I began relying, <laughs> relying upon Him mainly for the tasks I needed to do. For example, from the middle of my senior year in college until the present, I have been asked to give my Christian experience in group meetings. I would pray and ask God to refill me with the Holy Spirit, and not to let any sin get in my life until the meeting ended. It was like calling upon the National Guard for an emergency. God, by the way, was always faithful in these times. To me, this demonstrates so vividly His matchless and graceless love. To perform my Christian tasks, I needed God, I needed His help. I was convinced then, as I am now, that influencing men spiritually must be done through the Holy Spirit and not through the fleshly strength of the human frame. For me, and I can see it far more clearly now than I ever did in the past, the key issue was my mix-up on total forgiveness. The problem may have stemmed from back in the beginning of my Christian life when I recognized Jesus more as an example and a standard of life rather than as a savior and as my new life itself. But what happened and what went wrong is not nearly as important to me now. His new life is. And it is this new life which I so eagerly wish to share in the pages that that follow. I am thankful for everything that has occurred both before and after this new understanding on my part of the endless love of God. He has used it all for good. The people whom I have known and with whom I have been associated since becoming a Christian, are among the loveliest in God's creation. My experiences with Christ since college have been varied and adventuresome, but what God has done down inside of me, where the human spirit lives, make me feel, makes me feel like I have been through a spiritual renaissance. God has performed a happening for me, and it's still happening. This is no one-day-the-light-dawned-on-me story. God is still unveiling his love and pardon to one who keeps on needing it. It seems I have begun life anew, both with Jesus Christ and with my fellow man. And if the beginning be so sweet, what must the end of believing be? That's the end of chapter one. I love the last line of that, which I think was the one that particularly resonated with me. When I was in college which is uh, God is still unveiling his love and pardon to one who keeps on needing it it seems I have begun a new life with Jesus Christ and with my fellow man I I just love that idea I love the idea that God um, ultimately nailed everything that is from the past the present the future to the cross and and sort of put it all away and did put it all away not sort of put it all away to the point at which those things are no longer a part of what define me as a human and when i read those words i was very similar i i had gone to i'd have this faith conversion when i was young and and went to church and went to bible college and realized kind of went down that road of academic exercise believing that if i sort of pursued all the things that everyone said that i should I would have this really miraculous and wonderful life and it just was so empty i can remember the third year of college sitting in the basement of my apartment and just hating myself hating everything about it wanting never to be alive again sad depressed dark um lonely space because i just i didn't believe god actually loved me and i didn't think that especially given my behaviors, especially given who I was and my propensity towards things that are just ever going battles in my life, that God was just disinterested in me. He didn't want anything to do with me. He wasn't interested in coming up with anything that was going to be valuable. You know, I wasn't valuable to him and I was just sort of lucky and I might sort of escape this earthly trouble and barely make it into heaven uh, because he was gracious to me but he would sort of hold his nose when I came to the gate and he'd be like well you know you you barely made this you're here I guess I'm tolerating you being here but you're sort of just lucky and you should be grateful for that when I read those that verse or that read that little paragraph in that book something hit me and I and I didn't and I realized pretty quickly like well This is sort of a profound difference that if there's really a God interested in me, chasing after me, looking to be in relationship with me, this is going to be a very different outcome in my life than feeling as if I just snuck in under the wire into heaven. And I might want to live differently in that. It's an intriguing story. I think grace is something we wrestle with in a way that we don't, we don't love it. We're Americans. So we want to earn what we get we want to uh, earn the money we deserve we want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps we want to do all of these things all of which in an economic system isn't necessarily negative but in this crazy upside down economy that god has built none of those things are the way that we work our way towards his love for us the Ark of Scripture, and I've been saying this a lot lately. Uh, um, it's been certainly a phrase for me in my own life. The Ark of Scripture is truly God chasing after us. And you can look at example after example in the Old Testament and in the New, in which God is chasing His people down. When Adam and Eve sinned, from the very first story of this, when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid, and guess who came after them? Jesus. And when Paul is on the road to Damascus, he he knocks him flat on his keister and is chasing him down. And I think all the way along, God is chasing after his people. And the arc of us chasing down God is what we would call religion. And that is a fruitless, hopeless place. It hurts our, it actually hurts our ability to relate with other people. It isolates us it insulates us it cloisters us away from people that are dirty people we don't like people that we don't think are lovable and it makes us feel like we are the center of our capabilities and those things uh, are detrimental and as a man that has lived has lived through that and has walked through that this book is was so refreshing in that moment it's what i needed to hear because i was moving my way in that direction to a point at which I hated myself. So if I can't like myself and I can't think that God has forgiven me, there's no way I think that about other people. There's no way that I think God's done anything for anyone else. So that's uh, welcome to season two. I'm really excited about reading this book. It's something that's invigorated me. This, the last little while since I did the last podcast, there's just been so many wonderful conversations that have been around the book there's been so many awesome conversations about God and faith and grace and goodness in this crazy, crazy world that we're living in that feels so upside down, feels so out of place, feels so out of control. Um, and yet I just keep coming back to this same centrality that Jesus is chasing after you and he's chasing after me because he wants a relationship with us in a way that will change the world. So, thanks for listening. I'll, as always, uh, if you have a comment, you can go to com, drop us a line, let us know what's going on. We've got an exciting season coming. Um, I'm a guest on several podcasts out there, and we're going to have some guests on our podcast this, this particular season. So, hopefully, it's not just me reading this book, it'll be some more dynamic conversation. So, again, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.